In the face of extreme civil and ecclesiastic tyranny, the Apostle Peter gives us a stern warning. We must obey God rather than rebellious man. This is the 55th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from Second Samuel and chapter 23. Second Samuel and chapter 23, the first four verses. Once again, back to the first four verses. The inspiration of God, the prophet writes. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, And the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Paul writing to the church at Rome, in Romans in chapter 13, 1 through 5, the first five stanzas. By the same spirit, the apostle writes, Let every soul be subject unto the eye of powers. There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, But to the evil, wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. This is the word of the Lord. Now in a perfect world, every nation would have a just system of government led by leaders who are wholly committed to righteousness, executing their governance in accordance with the word of the Lord. Now David here is giving us a a model. And this model is for governments. This model is for civil leaders. But this model, in its perfect way, can only be met by the one who is perfectly just, who is actually ruling perfectly in the fear of the Lord, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet this is the model that rulers must be held to. Not perfectly because of the fallen nature of man, but this is the model that we subscribe to. So in a perfect world, we would have a just system of government, whether it was government of the family, the church, or the nation. And this government would be led by leaders who are wholly committed to righteousness, justice, executing their governance in accordance with the word of the Lord. Now, the world that God had originally created in the Garden of Eden was such a place. It was a just place. It was a righteous place. Adam did not have to remake the world into which he was born. The world was originally made good. The culture was good. The system of governance was good. Adam was created to self-govern according to the commandments of God. His family relationship with Eve was to be conducted according to the word of God so that his family governing structure would be righteous, just, equitable. Before the fall, there was no need to repair 
the garden. There was no need for the remaking of the world. It did not need to be changed, but it did need to be maintained, cultivated, and protected from any evil. And this is why God told Adam, subdue. After God created the world, as the gardener, Adam was not only to cultivate the garden, but he was to subdue it. That was his stewardship commission. And so the thing that Adam had to subdue was something that was not in the garden itself. The fact that Adam was a man who was prone to sin, he could sin, the thing that Adam was to subdue was his own possibility to sin, his own possibility to rebel, of which we know he did. And so by not governing himself according to the word of God, according to the commandment, don't eat from that certain tree, he was unable to subdue any tendency to rebel. Once you deny the word of God as your true north, you are no longer able to self-govern. You see, Adam was called to a divine mandate to subdue any and everything that threatened Eden's pristine order. And yet the thing that had to be subdued did not exist in Eden. In other words, it was not part of the physical garden itself. It was in fact in Adam. The thing that had to be subdued was in Adam. Eden's construct was perfect. God said, it is good. Nothing needed to be subdued in the world that God made. It was already good. As a created being, however, made from the dust of the earth, it was Adam's internal temptation to be as God, which threatened Eden's structure. And this is what he was tempted with. You will be as God, knowing good from evil. You see, Adam had the liberty of willpower. As a created creature, originally without sin, he was able to choose between good and evil. Since at his creation he was sinless, he was free to choose good or evil. He was able to obey. He was also able to rebel. At his creation, he was not perfect. Adam was never perfect, but he was sinless. His commission was to subdue his ability to choose evil. He was called to resist the temptation to sin. Don't eat from that tree. Resist that temptation. And that is what Adam failed to accomplish. He failed to subdue the motions. And this is what Paul speaks about in his Pauline epistles. He was failing to subdue the motions of his fleshly nature and the temptation that resided within his fleshly, earthly frame. Paul tells us as much. He tells us that Adam was a man who was earthy, insinuating that he was able to fall under the power of fleshly temptation, whereas Christ, on the other hand, as the last Adam, the perfect man, the perfect just one, the perfect righteous one, the man who could not fall, the man who could not fail, he was the Lord from heaven. And so failing to subdue Adam's earthliness, he rebelled. And once he chose the evil... He no longer had the ability to choose the good. All his decisions would now be structured according to his fallen nature, his initial rebellion. And this is what is so horrible about Adam's initial rebellion, is that by that one man's fall, he destroyed any possibility for himself to redeem himself. And with his fall, he destroyed any possibility for mankind to redeem himself themselves. 
So by Adam's initial rebellion, he destroyed any possibility to redeem himself by the exercise of his own will. He couldn't atone for himself by his sin, by his willingness to sin. He chose the evil and was destroyed. And in its place, in Adam's place, in his mind, were evil imaginations and thoughts against the Most High God. Wanting to be God, now he became the anti-God. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 puts it this way, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, bad enough to stop there. But God wants to make an impression upon us to tell us how bad and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. Ongoing. Consistent. Never ending. Only evil continually. It breaks your heart. But note the emphasis of this verse. The evil wickedness was great. In other words, the word in the Hebrew is mighty. It was mighty. It was a strong man. And it took control over the individual, over the individual's heart, over the individual's imagination, over the individual's thoughts. And they would think evil things in an ongoing fashion because by nature now they sought to be as God. There was a continuity of evil thoughts now predominant in the fallen human race because of Adam's sin. But not only did Adam destroy himself and the entire future generation of mankind, he destroyed the entire structure of the world and all of its institutions, including and especially government. Thorns and thistles as immediately came up after the fall. The entire structure of the world was thrown into a, into a chaotic void. And so fallen man, self-government, family government, church government, and civil government, every aspect of government was negatively affected. Nothing was not affected. Everything was affected. What Adam accomplished by his rebellion was the destruction of the world. And consequently, he was unable to remake it into what it originally was. Adam couldn't fix it. Just think about Adam. I think about Adam. After he realized, could you imagine, after he realized what he had done, the consequences of his one action, one would think that after God had clothed him with the badger skins, that Adam would look around from what Eden was into what Eden now had become and say, what can I do to fix this? And how he perhaps yearned, and I have to give him credit, perhaps he was yearning, what have I done? What have I done? How can I fix this? You can't fix it. It's done. But there is hope. And the hope comes through Jesus Christ. God had originally crafted the world to conform to his divine perception of what the world should be, what good was, what righteousness was, what justice and equity is. He had this perception. God's perception is this is what it should look like. God had introduced a perfect world to Adam and Eve. And with that introduction, he gave them a certain perception of culture. 
In other words, he gave them a certain world and life view. He gave them a perfect blueprint of how things should look, how things should function, how things should run, which made up the world that God had created. And what Adam was given was perfect. There was no need to change anything. But all that ended when Adam adopted another perception, another worldview, another blueprint of what the world should be, a perception that he could be as God that he could be as God and that he, as God, can craft a world to conform to his fallen image, not God's. That image was sinful, murderous, rebellious, despotic, hateful, dark, and chaotic. And as soon as Adam adopted another idea, because as a man thinketh, so is he, as soon as he adopted another idea, another perception, another worldview, another blueprint, which was distinct from his creator's, He acted upon it. Adam's wrong perception of the world based on his fallen nature and the fact that his thoughts were only evil continually caused him to recreate a world which was anti-God. When Adam violated the clear commandment of God, the age of Eden ended. The world in which God had created was then transformed into something ugly and something unsustainable, something rebellious. And so when Eden's culture ended, a new culture appeared, which was very much unlike the original design. That culture was a culture of trauma, chaos, confusion, and darkness because it was polluted with sin. And the evil of man's depravity, man who now was seeking divinity for himself, his own deification. Now in addition to the fall's result was man's propensity to suffer from strong delusion that he could attain godhood through his own efforts. Even though fallen man's image is marred by sin, he still understands that to be as God is to have power. This is what Adam wanted. He wanted to be God which means he wanted power. He wanted divinity. And because of the fall of man, consequently, unregenerate man seeks to be God. They seek power. In fact, unregenerate man lusts for power. Whether he exercises it in his desire to work his way to heaven or within a marriage relationship or within his community, or in the ecclesiastic community, or economic realm, or the political realm, where he can be the overlord above other men, ruling as a a god. Wherever he finds himself, man lusts for power, especially if there's no restraint, if there's no restriction on a man's power. A man will become a tyrant, a murderous tyrant, like in the days of Herod, in the days of Pharaoh. This is the world that Adam gave us. Human history has always lived within a fallen culture. We live amidst a culture where those in power want to be as God and they will do anything to attain their sinful lust. This means commandeering every aspect of human civilization, including its institutions and its laws. Because when men in power lose themselves to the notion that they can be as God, then we are on the precipice of revolution. Today, America and the entire global order is teetering on revolution. 
Now there's a marked difference between the world in which Adam and Eve were thrust into after the fall in the world and the culture that we now experience. And the difference is Christ has come. He has set himself up on the throne and he has promised to take out all of his enemies that come against his sovereign majesty. Whereas Adam and Eve only had the hope of cultural restoration, we have the actual manifestation along with the power of that cultural restoration through the resurrected Lord and by the sending of the Spirit to each and every one of us. So we have been empowered. The church has the power to make changes. Now, as a result of the new birth, as a result of the new birth, his elect has made inroads in the culture, historically, because they have been made into an exceeding great and strong army with exceeding great and precious promises of victory and dominion as a result of the conquest of the Messiah. And you think about what the church is actually today. It is not to run from wickedness. It is run toward wickedness to subdue wickedness. It is not to hide out in the four walls of the church. It is to be the army of Christ. It is to be the soldiers of Christ's army declaring truth to every aspect of civilization. And I marvel how so many in our modern day, even from the pulpits, can say, well, you know, we shouldn't talk about politics and government from the pulpits. The entire Bible speaks about governance and the political wranglings of men and nations, both good kings and wicked kings. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was the end of their world, but it was not the end of the world. They would still be responsible to fix what they had destroyed. But now they would have to fulfill that mandate in a fallen world. That's our predicament. We have to fulfill that mandate in a fallen world. My good friend, and I've quoted this before in this company, my good friend Thomas Smedley, Dr. Thomas Smedley observes, he says, quote, Ages end. The end of a culture appears to those in the midst of the trauma to be the end of the world. Most people go inert hunker down and wait to see what happens next. Many panic and embrace bizarre extremes of thought and behavior. From time to time, however, a remarkable leader emerges to lead the way to a more sustainable social reality. End quote. Adam and Eve had to lead the way for a more sustainable social reality. And the only way they could do that was to reject their own fallible reason and look to God's revelation. There's no such thing as sanctified common sense. Because the thoughts of man, the imaginations of man, the thoughts of man and the imaginations of man are only evil continually. So there's no such thing as sanctified common sense. You either go by your common sense, which is fallen and fallible and will always tend to destruction, or you're going to look to the revelation of God, the word of God, and you're going to direct yourself by the word of God. What the church needs to do today, before it's too late, is to exercise that great commission of cultural renovation by the preaching of the Word of God to every aspect of human existence and apply it to the real world through concrete applications. I said this before, I'll say it a thousand times. We don't need another think tank. We need a do tank. We need someone to do something from what they know is to be done. We need to start building civilization on the basis of God's revelation. 
We must rebuild the culture according to the blueprint of God's law word. The scripture calls us to be discerning in all that we do and speak. Our direction and all of our choices must be determined by the Holy Scripture. But there is another aspect of discernment that we must take into account. We must know the day in which we live. We must know the times and the seasons in which we live so we can properly and safely navigate them. We just can't go around with our heads in the clouds thinking that everything is just hunky-dory and everything's going to be fine because Jesus is coming soon. Well, what if Jesus isn't coming soon? What if it's our commission to bring the world to heal before the King of Righteousness so that Jesus comes? You see, God tells us to be discerning. God tells us that we are to be like the sons of Issachar that knew the times and the seasons in which they live so that they could properly and safely counsel God's people so that they can navigate God's people through the chaos, through the storm, through the confusion. In 1 Chronicles 12.32, we read this, And the children of Issachar, the sons of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. We should know what to do when this happens or that happens. We should know what to do when governance turns this way or that way, when the economy goes this way or that way or the other way. We have to know the times in which we live. Now note that these men were observant to the affairs of the world around them, and as men of God, they knew what to do. How many people you talk to today they say, oh, well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know. I, I, I'm just confused. I don't know what to do. These men knew what to do. They were in the revelation of God. They were in the word of God. They knew what to do. They were observant to the affairs of the world around them. And as men of God, they knew what to do, which means that they knew that they had to do something. In other words, there was something to do. They weren't sitting around talking about doing something. That just drives me out of my mind when somebody says, well, let's just keep talking about something. Let's, let's have another meeting. And we'll have another meeting. Then we'll have another meeting. Then we'll have a meeting to have another meeting. These men were talking about doing something because they knew something was there to do. They refused to sit idly by and watch the deterioration of the world around them to the hurt of their brethren. You know, there's a passage in Scripture which is By one of the prophets, he is exhorting his brethren. He's saying to them, Why sit ye idle? They understood and they acted. They built coalitions of faithful men and they executed real strategies. They did something to make a difference. Now, did some of their brethren think they were a little bit nuts? I would think so, perhaps. But it didn't matter to them. They knew that they had a call from God. They knew that they had to do something. No matter what anyone thought or said. You think about the days of Nehemiah. He knew that something had to be done. He knew that that wall had to be built. And he had all kinds of people telling him he was out of his mind. Oh, that's not going to happen. That's not going to work. You're going to try to build this wall. A fox is going to go on it. And the wall is going to crumble down. You know, when you tell people that you want to change the world for Christ, that your vision is to change the world for Christ, they say, you're out of your mind. Nehemiah just kept building that wall. He stuck to his knitting. He stuck to his convictions. He built that wall. And in 52 days, that wall was built. Because he stuck to it. He knew what he had to do. 
Now, one glaring reality is this, especially in our day. Whenever government assumes power, if not limited and directed by the word of God, tyranny results. This is especially true when it concerns the power of civil government. Remember the Apostle Paul is telling us what government should be. Ministers of good. Supporting the good. Putting down the evil. Defining good by the scripture. Defining evil by the scripture. Not willy-nilly. Not by what they think is good or what they think is bad. But what God says is good because his perception is accurate. Man's is not. Now throughout scripture... God records what happens when wicked men take control of government to the enslavement, misery, and destruction of a people. Politics and governance is a recurring theme throughout the whole of Scripture. And to deny that fact is to be willfully blind to God's word in the history of God's people. So let's consider the following. What are the indicators? Now remember, here's what we're doing here. We're going to judge the times and the seasons in which we... In 2024, live. Okay? We're going to judge. So we have to ask certain questions. What are the indicators that show that a nation is being oppressed by its leaders? First question. Second, perhaps a more pressing question is, when a people realize that they are being oppressed by a government that is anti-God, anti-covenantal, and anti-biblical, what is to be done? We're Christians, we ought to know what we should be doing. Number three, what does history afford us as far as examples of what a people are supposed to do in situations like oppression and tyranny? In other words, do we have any definitive historical models which coincide with Scripture? Do we have scriptural models to look to? What did God do in this situation? Does that correspond with our situation? What did they do? What did God say? How did they pray? Do we have those historical examples, both from the scriptures and history itself? Because tyranny has been around since the fall. And the final question, what are some of the challenges in deciding what to do in our modern era since no historical model can provide all the answers, especially in our technological age? Now, in this sermon, we will address only the first two considerations and the Lord willing next week, we'll consider the next two. And so, first, what are the indicators that show that a nation is being oppressed by its leaders? How do we know? We might feel as if that's happening. We might think, yeah, that's a bad law, and this is no good, and and this... Well, wait a minute. Is there a definitive way we can know? How can we know? Is there something we can look to? Is there a list that we we could look to? Now, while history may provide some principles warnings and strategies, it cannot take into the account all of the technological and global issues of our modern era, which often makes things so difficult. And that's why people aren't willing to, to, to figure it out, because it's so complex. I believe many of our modern-day church leaders have deliberately failed to address real issues facing both the nation and the church because they are woefully unprepared biblically to understand what they're supposed to do. Also because everything's so complex. Much of the modern-day theological escapism, in other words, it's easy to say, it's getting really bad. Jesus is, man, he's going to come any minute and just pull us out of it. We just have to wait. It's easy to do that. If Martin Luther said that over 500 years ago, he'd still be waiting. 
too much of this modern-day theological escapism is rooted in the fact that many of the ministers, they don't know what to do because they don't really know what the Bible says when faced with real issues of tyranny or what type of government is supported or what type of government should be resisted. And so over the years, as the church recedes into the shadows, and that's where the church has gone, into the shadows, think about the church today. You've got Sunday morning Bible studies, Sunday morning worship, Sunday evening worship. That's what's commanded. Then you have Monday morning meeting there, Wednesday Bible study, Awana group, this group, that group, and never are the people of the army of God in the culture making a difference. They're always hiding out in the church. You've got to get them out there. You've got to do work outside of the church. The church is the training ground. It's the, it's the equipping. It's the army of God. And so, for many years, the church has receded into the shadows, no longer leading the charge for cultural renovation. And because of that, people are further lulled into complacency. When's the last time you heard the statement, the church, militant and triumphant, instead of fearful and meek or effeminate? The church, the body of the living Christ, Hiding like partridges in the mountains, like Israel in the days of the Philistines and Goliath, hiding in the mountains. So the more an individual drinks the poison of the secular status quo, the more drunk they become with it. The result is destructive satisfaction. They're satisfied to their destruction. And they're satisfied most times with what God hates, with the things that God hates. We'll tolerate that. And yet, God hates that. Oh, but, but we, we don't want to make any waves. But God hates that. Oh, but we don't want to speak out against uh, the pornography in the library. But God hates that. Oh, we don't want to speak about against this or that. Wait a minute. You're tolerating wickedness. This is being satisfied unto your own destruction, which destroys both men and nations. Why sit we idle? The Associate Justice to the Supreme Court, William O. Douglas, said this, quote, As night does not come all at once, neither does oppression. In both instances there is a twilight, when everything remains seemingly unchanged. And it is such a twilight that we all must be aware of change in the air, however slight, lest we become unwitting victims of the darkness. Now consider the indicators which show that a nation is on the brink of all-out despotism. When God's covenant model for a just nation is negated, ignored, or perverted, tyranny results. All nations are covenantly accountable to God to structure their governance and their laws according to the word of God. Daniel Eleazar in his book, Covenant Polity in Biblical Israel, observes, quote, Through covenant, the two faces of politics, power and justice, are linked to become effective both morally and operationally. Government must be moral. And this means that whenever the moral standard of God's word is neglected, ignored, or perverted within the operational confines of government, tyranny results. 
the fact of the matter is that whenever a government seeks to function apart from the biblical covenant model of accountability to God, it's doomed to fail. You cannot sustain a government model that's based on man's fallible reason. It just doesn't work. It never worked historically in any of the major nations of the world, of the empires of the world. They all fell away and were destroyed. They evaporated either by other nations destroying them or by imploding from within. Paul, the apostle, sets forth an unabbreviated explanation in Romans 13, implying, I believe, that the particulars of the Old Covenant model are to be the standard of governance. And again, Daniel Eleazar observes that any concern with politics and governance should focus on three general terms. One, the pursuit of justice to achieve the good political order. Justice? Does government even know what justice is anymore? Secondly, the search for an understanding of proper political power and its exercises. Proper political power should be limited. Third, the development of an appropriate civic environment through political society and community capable of integrating the first two principles to produce a good political life according to what good is biblically. And this is how both Israel and the future Western nations saw their political and societal and governance order in terms of covenant. They understood that they were responsible under God. Eleazar notes this, he says, quote, during the 16th and 17th centuries, that's pretty modern, the Swiss, the Dutch, the Scots, and the English Puritans not only conceived of civil society in covenantal terms, but actually wrote national covenants to which loyal members of the body politic subscribed. They wanted to be accountable to God. They knew that they were not God. And they didn't want to assume that they could be as God. So they covenanted together to acknowledge God. Now as flawed as the United States Constitution is, because it's not a covenantal model, America's covenant expression is found in the U.S. Constitution. Unlike the more precise covenant expressions of the Swiss Dutch, Scots, and English, where God, his laws, and his sanctions were the foundation of their declaration, the United States Constitution sadly omits some of the most important and strategic elements of the biblical model, making it more of a secular social contract rather than a biblical covenant. And because it's more of a social contract being pulled from the English and the French and the Scottish Enlightenment, it's been stripped of its divine force. And yet, according to Eleazar, still, even though it's stripped of its divine force, not having the structure as a covenant, the U.S. Constitution is an expression, in, in a way, of covenant, if not purely biblical. He believes that the very idea of constitutionalism, or limited government, under such constitution, is derived from the idea of covenant. And as you know, in previous sermons, we saw Geneva was structured under a biblical covenant model, and that was the foundation of Western civilization. And once again, we see secular men of the colonial enlightenment borrowing from scripture and its Christian roots. However, without the stipulations and sanctions of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, 
Constitutionalism is simply a secular idea. Without the weight of God as part of the agreement. Now remember, whenever a president of the United States took the oath of office, he was to put his hand on the Bible. Today, they put their hand on the Bible, but the Bible is closed. It never was that way. The Bible is always open. And it was open to Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is the covenant model which says, Obey God, be blessed, disobey, and you will be cursed. The second indicator is when God's covenant law is neglected, ignored, or perverted. His law. Notice what Moses tells the people of Israel from the hand of God. He says, Behold, Deuteronomy 4, 5-9, through 9, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should so do them in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations. Notice, you are in the eye of the nations. The nations are watching you, Israel, which shall hear all these statutes. The nations which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation, Israel, is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon Him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all of this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen and lest they depart from thine heart all the days of thy life but teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. Keep them in the generational continuities focus. You see, America was great because at one time America's churches were preaching the word of God and the governance was being directed by the pulpits which were faithful at that time. God's covenant would not only include an establishment of law, which was just and righteous, it would include a just law system of courts and trials. Evidences for a crime must be forthcoming. There can be no conviction without proper evidence. There must be witnesses and a speedy trial must ensue. But the guilty party would have to be punished. You think I was speaking Swahili or something. That just makes... Even common sense that the guilty parties after conviction would be punished. They cannot be simply set free as we see today in our perverted justice system whenever guilty criminals are allowed to go free without any consequences whatsoever. You can know of a surety for a fact that the justice system is under divine judgment and total tyranny and chaos is right around the corner. We are on the brink and the churches... Author Naomi Wolf lays out what she calls the 10 steps of tyranny. Now, whatever you think about Naomi Wolf, maybe you don't know her, maybe you do, maybe you like her, maybe you don't. It's inconsequential. The points she makes are quite enlightening. She says this, There are 10 steps that every tyrannical government has followed. We are now at step 10. Once the 10th step locks into place, there will be no going back. The ten steps toward tyranny start with the invocation of a terrifying internal and or external threat. From 2001 onward, that threat was terrorism, which was used as a justification for stripping us of our liberties, the Patriot Act. With the declaration of COVID-19 as a global pandemic, 
we entered step 10, where emergency powers and laws are used to strip remaining freedoms from the people. Censorship is enacted and certain kinds of speech now is criminalized. And we have hate crimes. Now we have, we can't say what we want. We can't give our opinions if they're not lockstep and barrel with the governance of the tyranny of the tyrannical state, then you go to jail. She continues. The surveillance state, and that's interesting, she wrote this before the Bank of America was watching every one of you. She says, the surveillance state is now being rolled out in the form of vaccine passports, while certain kinds of speech are said to be dangerous, and freedom of speech is to be criminalized. Needless to say, she says, the mainstream press is an important part of this scheme. Now, her list includes the following. Number one, invoke an external and internal threat. Establish secret prisons. Develop a paramilitary force. Surveillance on ordinary citizens. Infiltrate citizens group. Arbitrarily detain and release citizens. January 6th. Target key individuals. Restrict the press. Cast criticism as espionage and dissent as treason. And then number 10, subvert the rule of law. So whether you like it or not, whether you want to hear it from the pulpit or not, probably not going to hear it anywhere else, tyranny is upon us. But it's upon us as a result of Christendom's unwillingness to unify the faithful churches under the banner of Christ's crown and covenant. If you think about it, the churches are so schismatic, everybody's doing their own thing, doing their own, where's the coalition? You got this denomination, that denomination, that denomination, that denomination. That leads up to the next consideration. When a people realize that they are being oppressed by a government that is anti-God, anti-covenantal, and anti-biblical, what are they to do? Well, the first thing God's people are to do is to resist any and all unjust laws. I'll repeat that. The first thing God's people are to do is to resist any and unjust laws. This is commonly called civil resistance. Now, I refuse to call it civil disobedience since it's actually not disobedience. It's obedience to the highest magistrate in the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. The locus clastus, which means the verse whereby all other actions of civil resistance are rooted, is Acts 5.29. It is here where Peter clearly gives us our platform and posture in the face of tyranny and unjust laws. Everyone knows it. We ought to obey God rather than men. But note what it says and what it doesn't say. Note it does not say God and man. It doesn't say we ought to obey God and man. We are to obey God rather or instead of man whenever his laws, statutes, and ordinances are sinful, anti-biblical, tyrannical, and his laws are opposite to God and his laws. How are you going to obey a law that God says that is sin? You can't. In right conscience, you can't. And so whenever the civil laws harmonize with Scripture and the principles of God's law, then we obey. But when they fly flatly in the face of the law of God, how can we condone? How can we obey? We cannot. We, we ought not. 
And this is true within any and every situation, be it the marriage relationship, the work environment, church or state. The Bible gives us these concrete historical examples. Just think about how the Bible parses this. Moses and Aaron opposed Pharaoh flatly to his face when he refused, when Pharaoh refused to liberate God's people by calling down curses upon him. There's a lot there. Moses never asked Pharaoh for permission to worship God. He didn't ask Pharaoh, hey, can you allow us to open the church because we know there's this thing out there? He demanded of Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh said no, he prayed imprecatory psalms against him. Oh, but pastor, we are to love everybody. Pharaoh was created to be destroyed according to Romans chapter 9. He was created for one purpose, to show God's power and his love for his people. So Moses and Aaron opposed Pharaoh. Daniel refused to obey King Darius's order not to pray. Not only did he pray, I mean, Daniel, look, got to love him. Daniel could have been very savvy. He could have secretly went into the closet and prayed a little prayer. Secret prayer. I'm going to pray. Nope. Daniel gets up in the morning, he opens those windows, and he prays so everybody sees him. No fear, because he had the fear of God. Not the fear of men, the fear of God. He opens the windows. Haggai and Zechariah counsels the Jews to rebuild the temple, which is a direct violation of Artaxerxes' orders. They could have been killed for treason. They could have been killed for disobeying the orders of the king. But they said, you rebuild the temple. Today, you go preach the gospel. You build a temple. You gather the lively stones and we come together, we coagulate together to build the body of Christ, the temple of the living Christ. The midwives refused to obey Pharaoh. In fact, they lied. And they were given houses and property and God loved them. Jonathan refused Saul's order to kill David. Saul was the king. Not only that, Saul was his father. Honor thy father and mother. Sorry, you're a murderer. Saul's armory refused to kill the Lord's priest in 1 Samuel 22:17. Saul wanted all the priests not killed. And they said, sorry, we're not going to do it. So Doeg the Edomite did it. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to eat the king's meat prescribed to them by the king. They could have been killed too. Mordecai refused to pay homage to Haman as King Azarias had commanded. But he knew that Haman was a wicked man. Even though Ahasuerus was the king, Mordecai said, nope, not going to do it. Kill me. So what? That's it. I will not listen to wickedness. And then finally, the wise men from the east refused to tell Herod, the murderous psychopath that he was, where the Christ child was born by not returning to the Palestinian king's court in Jerusalem. However, it is not only the duty of resistance to godless laws that is commanded. It is the duty of all Christians to defend the jurisdiction of the church and the Christian family. 
And so whenever the security of the family or the church is threatened by tyrannical laws, resistance not only is an option, it is a duty. It is our duty. But now the question is, how has history applied the doctrine of civil resistance to tyrannical laws and tyrannical rulers? What does history have to say? What about our forefathers? And I don't mean Washington, Adams, and Jefferson. I mean Calvin, Beza, Bullinger, Rutherford, even Mornay, Ponet, Viray, the Puritans. How did they deal with that? Because tyranny is not something new to the 21st century. Tyranny has been around since after the fall. So how has history... Remember what Asaph said. Tell your children about history. Teach them history. How has history applied the doctrine of civil resistance to tyrannical laws and tyrannical rulers? What can we learn from these men and women that came before us so that we may better understand our duty... And we will explore that next time when we return to our exposition on the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.